Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And today I have an amazing person, um, somebody who's seen as a leader in the field uh, globally. Uh, I, I words can't describe uh, this this man's accomplishments. Uh, his man, this man is named Don Don Tat, Tapscott. Um, he's the co-founder and executive chairman at the Blockchain Research Institute. Don, welcome to the show today. Great to be here, as it were. Thank you. Um, so, first question is this: What is your background, and is it a logical background for what you do now? Huh? Never been asked that. I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> I, I started out in the. I'm dating myself here in the '70s at Canada's Bell Labs, and um, got the job because I was a psychologist who knew about research methodology, and we were doing experiments on um, multi-function workstations connected to networks and how they might change the nature of managerial work and the, the design of organizations. And I wrote a couple of books on that uh, in the 1980s, arguing that everyone would use a computer and they'd become a communications tool. And my mother bought most of the copies. They were a study in bad timing. Um, and uh, <laughs> Amazingly, the main reason people said you're wrong, and, and I was wrong for a decade, uh, was that managers and professionals will never learn to type. That's why this whole thing was not going to happen. <laughs> so uh, I became an advocate for typing. Typing is fun. You can type. Um, but then in the early 90s, I started writing some bestsellers, and I wrote uh, Paradigm Shift 93. It's obviously a big book. And then I wrote The Digital Economy, um, which they say was the first bestseller about the web and business in uh, 94. And then there have been a, a bunch of big books since then, a few that my mom came through <laughs> for me. Um, uh, I wrote uh, a book in 1996, co-authored a book about privacy. It was called Who Knows? Safeguarding Our Privacy in the Networked Age. And uh, mom came through for me on that one. But uh, everyone said, like, privacy? I don't get it. What's the issue? But um, but there's, there have been uh, some really big books uh, as well. And most recently, um, started about six years ago, I wrote Blockchain Revolution uh, with my son, Alex. And I got lucky on the timing on that. And I also got lucky on the co-author, who turns out is smarter than I am. Um, but uh, that's the big book on, on blockchain. It's like 20 languages and um, sold lots of copies. And then um, we created the Blockchain Research Institute. And that um, uh, is, I guess, the sort of the big independent think tank looking at blockchain and its uh, use cases, problems, implementation issues, uh, big uh, policy governance issues, and so on. And uh, we're doing 120 projects, or have done. Um, 
and this is uh you know it's a real kind of going concern and uh i'll just end this long kind of diatribe with uh I, i've i've been studying these big changes for four decades now and i think that this is actually the biggest um it's bigger than all the other ones and uh, i think that it holds um, vast potential, and it's also full of problems. So that's kind of what I'm up to now. Thank you. Um, so you, you talked about your son, right? You talked about blockchain revolution, you know, and in that book, you talk about, you just define the internet of value. You know, what does, what does the internet of value mean? What is that? Yeah. Well, when we started on this whole thing, it was like, what what does blockchain represent sort of historically? Some interesting new technology. And we came to the conclusion that it's really, it's the second era of the internet in the sense that for the first era, uh, we had mainframes, mini computers, PCs, the internet, the web, the mobile web, social media, the cloud, big data. And now we have the second era where uh, we have machine learning and AI and technologies that do things they weren't programmed to do. Um, we have the physical world becoming animated as billions and trillions of inert objects become smart communicating devices. All kinds of these extraordinary new technologies. And, um, and I came to the conclusion that the foundational technology for all of that was, in fact, blockchain. And and you can think of it as the second era of the internet too so for for 40 years this whole period we had an internet of information we were using yarpanet back then um in the 70s and but if i send you some information you know uh, a pdf a powerpoint a photo whatever i'm actually sending you a copy even with a website i keep the original and that works great for information, but when it comes to things that really matter, assets, things of value, like money, securities, intellectual property, the data and our identities, you know, contracts, cultural assets like art or music or votes, vote is an asset, something of value that belongs to somebody. Uh, when it comes to assets, copying those is not a good idea. <laughs> you don't want someone copying your vote or your identity or the song you just wrote. And if I um, if I send you a thousand euros, it's really important that I, I don't still have the money, right? So cryptographers have called this the double spend problem for decades. And the way that we manage this in our economy is, is through intermediaries, banks, stock exchanges, uh, credit card companies, brokers, transfer agents, now social media companies and they perform all of the business and transaction logic for every type of commerce right they identify the asset that's a euro that's a stock that's a song that's a vote uh, they clear and settle transactions they keep records and uh, you know they've done a pretty good job but there are growing problems which i'm happy to get into if you want but um but the point here is what if there were not just an inter internet of information what if there were an internet of value some kind of vast global distributed ledger where anything of value like money stocks song could be managed stored transacted in a secure and private way 
That's what Satoshi Nakamoto did that was important. 2008, Satoshi cracked the double spend problem. And Bitcoin was really the first app of the Internet of Value. Kind of like back, back 40 years ago, email was the first app of the Internet of Information. But now we have all these, these platforms that are emerging, Ethereum being the first, but others, you know, Polkadot, uh, Cardano, um, uh, Solana, uh, Cosmos, that enable you to build any app. And th this is a really big deal because for the first time in human history, people and organizations can deal with assets. They can manage, store, transact, communicate, things of value peer-to-peer. And trust is not achieved by an intermediary. It's achieved by cryptography and collaboration and some clever code, which is why um, Alex and I decided we're going to call it um, the, the Internet of Value, the trust protocol. This is a native digital medium for value, kind of like the Internet of Information was a native digital medium for information. So um, that's what we mean by the Internet of Value. And uh, that idea, not everything I've coined over the years has, has got coined, but that one has uh, sort of taken hold. Uh, it was the, the idea was introduced in the book and also in my TED Talk, which is now, um, you know, it's the big TED Talk, not just on blockchain, but on any technology. So um, I'm going to ask you about the, the Blockchain Research Institute. And I know you have 120 projects that you mentioned, and I want to mention one. Um, the other day, I was scrolling through Twitter in the middle of the night, and I saw some people bad-mouthing one of my projects. I won't talk about what the project is, but one of the persons said that they're they're into Bosagora. And then I looked at Bosagora, and I saw they had a South Korean team, and I saw that you were an advisor. So uh, what is some of the work that you're doing with that project, and is that similar to the work that you do at the, at the Institute? Well, Bosagor is a platform in Korea, kind of like Ethereum. Um, and I advise them, but it's funny you mention that because I'm about to get on an airplane and go to Korea, where the mayor of, uh, of Nanyangju City um, is launching, a, I think, is an historic initiative. It's on... Um, uh, the date coming up is Tuesday, December the, uh, sorry, December the 6th, uh, sorry, December the 7th. And um, it's, it's at a big summit. And what they're doing is they're, um, they're announcing a metaverse based on blockchain, Bosagora is the partner, where all government services, pay your taxes, parking ticket, whatever, uh, find healthcare, plus retail learning and work are going to occur in a metaverse. And uh, it sounds kind of crazy, really, but I think that this is a really big deal, and I'm quite excited about it. Because the whole idea of the metaverse is getting a second life, if you will, um, because of blockchain. 
question. So I want to, I was going to ask you a little bit later on about, you know, metaverses, but I wanted to find out your thoughts. I will ask you now, um, what, um, how, will, how will they work in the front end and in the back end? Well, there'll be a metaverse environment. I don't actually know because I haven't seen it. But as a citizen, you log on, you wander around, you go to a lecture, you, um, you know, you uh, access some government services, you um, uh, buy, buy some stuff, whatever. And the idea is that in this digital world, you get to keep your data. So you will build up an identity that's very rich. And that was never possible um, with the traditional sort of virtual worlds like Second Life. Um, but blockchain sort of enables the metaverse to come alive because you can do that. You can own your data, but also assets are now protectable, digital assets through NFTs. And you can also have a currency that's a digital currency that's actually a real currency where you can turn the money into a, you know, into fiat currency if you want. But you can also be buying all kinds of stuff, paying paying for, for your taxes or whatever in this metaverse environment. So that's what it's going to look like from the front end. From the back end, I don't know the details, but all this is based on a blockchain. So um, that that enables all of these things like protection of assets, NFTs, a digital currency, uh, a self-sovereign identity to be able to occur in this environment. So if this works out, it's going to be a really big deal. It could have big implications all around the world. But talk to me <laughs> in the 10th of December and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I think it's uh, from, from what we've seen where this is a very cool thing. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I like to talk about one of your earliest books that you mentioned, and that was, you know, Paradigm Shift, right? What was that all about then? And how would some of the principles that you have put in that book apply to this blockchain world today? Well, that's a great question because, first of all, I didn't invent the idea of a paradigm. That was Thomas Kuhn in a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions um, in the 60s. But I guess... I was the first, certainly, to write a book um, describing how this could be applied to um, more broadly. There, there was another guy named, um, and it was a year after the book came out, I saw this video about paradigm shifts by a guy named uh, Joel Baker or Joel Barker or something like that. And it was a very clever video, too. Um, and it, But it was, the, it, and we may have been working on this at the same time. I actually met him. We tried to compare notes to figure it out. But um, the idea is that a paradigm is a mental model and paradigms put boundaries around what we think. They constrain our actions. They're often based on assumptions that are so strong we don't know that they're there. You know, the earth is at the center of the universe. It's a paradigm. Uh, the big problem in the world is communism. Remember that one? Uh, the purpose of computing in a large organization is to automate existing business processes with the goal of reducing headcount. That was the paradigm in IT for decades. And it was assumed that compute the computers were large, centralized, mainframe things. Well, along comes 
something in art, science, culture, technology, whatever, and, you, and a shift occurs. And that book described the shift from traditional computing to networks. And um, it didn't use the word internet. And um, um, and but that, that came up a year and a half later in the digital economy. But it did lay out all of the principles for this whole network world. And then the, the big idea in the book that's pertinent today was that when you get a paradigm shift, uh, you get a crisis of leadership because, you know, new paradigms are with coolness or worse, you know, mockery, hostility, uh, vested interests fight against change. Uh, leaders of old paradigms have difficulty embracing the new. And, um, and so every organization has to find within itself the leadership for change. And, um, and then I tapped on this guy, Peter Senge, who wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline. And I said, well, where does leadership come from? And he had argued that the person at the top can't learn for the organization as a whole anymore. Things are becoming too complicated. And which is why you need to create an organization that can learn. So we kind of put all that together and then applied it back then. And it was a challenge for people to, to reach out and to become a leader for change. And to understand you're going to get resistance. I mean, Galileo had a rough life trying to you know, convince the church that the earth wasn't um, at the center of the universe. And, um, you know, he was exonerated by the Pope, I think like 25 years ago or something. The Pope said, yeah, Galileo was right. We're, we're not the center of the universe. We're a planet. And we rotate around this thing called the sun with other planets. That was 25 years ago. So, um, you know, the leaders of Newtonian physics fought against Einstein's general theory of relativity. So, so as we move to this internet of value, the leaders of the old are fighting the new. You've got an entire financial system with its organizations and computer systems and customer behaviors and regulation and regulators and laws and, and, and so on, that this whole new model is bumping up against. And that's just in one industry, financial services. So this is the big challenge today is finding the leadership for bringing about a change like this. And that leads to my next question. Um, the U.S., especially the SEC chief, right, is often in the news calling cryptos, all cryptos, securities, um, you know, and it looks like they're trying to apply this 100-year-old, you know, methodology, the security laws of 1933 and 1940 to digital technologies, right? Um, you know, what paradigm shift needs to occur with these regulators, with the banks, you know, so that they can look at crypto and uh, look at as maybe adopting or side by side working together. How can we help to get them there? Yeah. Well, um, there's a new paper um, which we're releasing this week from the Blockchain Research Institute. We're releasing it public that argues that securities are one of nine types of digital assets. And you need to have a clear taxonomy to understand the differences between each of these. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite befuddled actually by the SEC because Gary Gensler, who's the head 
um, is, is quite knowledgeable. And he taught a course on blockchain at MIT. I know they use my book and the TED Talk. Um, and then he comes out and, and says stuff like this. So, and it prevents them from doing all kinds of totally sensible things that would help build an innovation economy and uh, would, would avoid problems. Like, why can't you have a Bitcoin ETF in the United States or an Ethereum ETF or an ETF representing a bundle of assets that would treat it, sure, as a security. Um, and uh, where investors could just phone up their broker and say, I want to buy some of that, all fully regulated, fully compliant. They did, this is possible in Canada. So I don't know. I've never met the man. Um, we'll send him a copy of this paper. I hope he enjoys it. But it, it, it strikes me as odd that you find someone who's quite knowledgeable and then he gets in there and the machine somehow changes the way that, that, he, uh, that he views things. Um, you know, and you spend enough time with people who are threatened by this change and you may end up changing your point of view. I don't know honestly what happened and it's wrong for me to even speculate about it. But I think that that the the problem is not just one of lack of knowledge the problem is one of old paradigms die hard and um you know we've got this entire system that's designed to view things a certain way to view to, to have a mental model of what this is all about and um and countries that find the leadership for change are going to be the ones that get ahead. Thank you. Um, so earlier you mentioned NFTs, um, and you said that you know um, there are a big deal now. So I wanted to find out from you um, how is the paradigm shifting so that artists who used to live a life of you know of a starving artist, you know, are now able to build abundant lives. Um, offering their art directly to, to people and and helping to build this up this consumer economy. How is that playing out? Well, we hypothesized about this um, in Blockchain Revolution. We talked about a new paradigm, for example, for the music industry. We're also, we introduced the idea of, we called them crypto collectibles, not NFTs. Um, who would figure that NFT would non-fungible token would be a better term than crypto collectibles. Anyway, um, that's the one that, that kind of took off. And the idea is that, that the creators of cultural assets should be fairly compensated for the value they create. So you're an artist, you do a painting, a digital drawing or a real uh, physical world painting. You have an NFT that, that represents that and then uh, when you sell it you keep a residual interest in the in the work so that if the interest is sold again maybe you sell it for a hundred dollars because you're a starving uh, startup artist and later it's worth a million dollars you retain you know 10 percent or something and you receive some of the value you created for musicians last week i was in vienna at the launch of a uh, a company called globalrockstars.com. 
And it's a very cool thing where as a musician, you create a song, you post it on their platform. And it means that you collect revenue directly, but also um, me as a lover of music can invest in the song because the song is an NFT. And, um, and then you, and if the song does really well, then you as the lover of the song, you make lots of money too. So it's a way of engaging, um, engaging the, the, uh, the audience in investing in music and in benefiting from the music as well. So this is a space that's just so exciting. And I'm very, I'm very proud that we kind of outlined it all uh, way back in blockchain, way back six years ago in blockchain revolution. Awesome. So as this collaborative economy grows, yeah. what what role do you see um, decentralized Oracle networks playing in the build out of that? Well, networks can do everything that a lot of traditional institutions did do. So um, just taking financial services, for example, it's kind of like this Rube Goldberg machine, right? The super complicated thing that does something really simple, like crack an egg or open a door. <laughs> you know, somebody makes a payment and somebody else gets paid. You wouldn't think you need six intermediaries in the middle to manage all that. Well, all of that can be now be done by software. You don't need a bank to store your assets. They can be stored on a network with, uh, with um, you know, a multi-sig, sort of like a, like a safety deposit box, you know, where you have a key, but also someone else uh, has a key to it as well. Um, you don't need a bank to do investment banking. I mean, the, the biggest token generation event raised $4 billion. And there was no stock market, no stock, no investment banker. People are buying tokens to represent an interest in the company. So this is like, can we conceive of a world without banks? Well, the banks are not going to go away because they're working hard to reinvent themselves. But this is really something like I've never seen before that, that uh, um, you know, Alex gave a TEDx talk. These things are normally viewed by 2,000 people. He's got like 800,000 views just passed a couple of days ago. And it's called How Blockchain is Eating Wall Street. He did that five years ago. This was a prophetic speech uh, because everything that he laid out is actually happening now. It's called DeFi, Decentralized Finance. And again, that's just one industry. So um, I wrote a book and a year and a half ago uh, yeah. called, called Regeneration X. And it basically showed how the skilled were put on the sidelines of corporate America and how, you know, um, over the last decade and, and uh, you know, we, we have to find our way and hopefully it's using blockchain, but it might be other ways. But one of the areas um, that is not really talked about right now that, um, and I want to get your viewpoint on it, is the divide between analog and digital. The, the it seems like the boomer generations, the analog generation, the millennials is the, and Gen Z is the digital, but there's a, there's a, in between area that doesn't that doesn't get discussed that should probably get discussed and that's the transition the bridge between analog and digital what role do you think that that should play in the build out of this decentralized economy uh, i'm sorry that 
what role should what play? The the bridge, the in between, the in between generation between the analog generation and the digital generation, that divide that exists. Um, what role do you? Yeah, we're talking about human generations. Um, well, uh, growing up digital really addressed that, um, and um, I. Th I'll just uh, recap some of that. I, I started studying kids, uh, young people, in um, the mid-90s when I noticed how my own children were effortlessly able to uh, <laughs> use all this sophisticated technology. At first, I thought my children are prodigies. And then I noticed that all their friends were like them, so that was a bad theory. So I started working with 300 kids. They were like age 7 to like 17. And um, I came to the conclusion that this is the first generation to come of age in the digital age, and these kids are going to be different. Now, most of them are now out in the workforce. They're just the tail end of that, the baby boom echo, Gen Z, uh, Gen Y, or the millennials. Um, the uh, the uh, youngest of them were born in 1997, and they are different. I called it a generation lap not gap, where this is the first time in human history when children are an authority about something really important. So you can see this generation clash kind of happening in the workplace, you know, that young people and their culture is very uh, different. Um, on LinkedIn, there's a good piece, I think, that I wrote um, called Everything You Know About Managing the Millennials is Wrong. And it describes all of our concepts of HR, you recruit people, you train them, you compensate them, you manage their performance, you evaluate uh, their performance, you supervise them. And it goes through and talks about how every one of those things is stupid and how we need to think about these people uh, very differently if we're going to really engage them effectively in the workplace. So I'm glad to see that you're writing about that too. I look forward to checking it out. Awesome. Thank you. So, um, I want to thank you very much um, for your time today. It's been a real honor and a real pleasure to get to talk to you. I do have one last question, um, and that is, how can people find more, uh, more information about you, about what you do, about what the Institute does? How can they read your books? How can they, how can they obtain more information about you? Um, well, uh, three things. Um, blockchainresearchinstitute.org or .com. There are millions of dollars of research papers that we've written that we've made available to the public. Uh, the second one is my staff just uh, put together uh, dontapscott.com. And, and it's got a lot of stuff about my work, including my music and uh, you know speaking and efforts to bring about change in the world over, over the years. And it's kind of a cool site. It's a lot of the feast of good stuff there. <laughs> Some of it I've forgotten about. Um, and then the other thing is the books. Uh, Blockchain Revolution, the new edition, is still a great book. Um, but um, we're publishing a book quarterly now. So um, on Amazon.com, you can find uh, the Financial Services Revolution, and that's uh, Alex Tapscott. There's Supply Chain Revolution, which is um, edited with the essays by me. Um, 
and that's the first book to talk about blockchain and pandemics supply and specifically around supply chain and then the third one just came out it's called platform uh, revolution where again i uh, i edited it and, and uh, I wrote some of the articles or, or some of the essays in the book and that argues that blockchain has really achieved a platform status now we introduce a new term we'll see if it holds called trivergence um the convergence of computing sorry of um of ai machine learning the internet of things and blockchain and this uh, the idea of trivergence i think is a big concept so that's also um just been published so um or, or just go to the google type in my name and <laughs> And for better or for worse, it will light up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> Excellent. It's been an honor. It's been a privilege, a privilege talking to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Okay. Thanks so much.